0: Luke A., Ryan S., Andy J., and Mike P. We have a new guest on the program today, and one that I'm very excited to speak with. Ms. Judith Curry has joined the show. Judith is the president of Climate Forecast Applications Network, founded in 2006, professor emerita at Georgia Institute of Technology, and author of the book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. You can learn more about Judith and her work by visiting her website, judithcurry.com. Ms. Curry, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Welcome. Well, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Very much looking forward to talking with you and getting your take on many different subjects and also just you being able to share your wisdom with us, Judy. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Typically, to kick things off here, what we like to do is we like to talk about the background and experience of our guests. And of course, uh, in your case, to establish that you are a professional of your field. And just for the audience, let me hit some of the highlights as you come. Highly recommended. then I'd like to hear from you. But just on universities, institutions, and agencies, University of Chicago, PhD, Northern Illinois University, Bachelor's of Science, Georgia Institute of Technology, University of Colorado, Purdue, Penn State, University of Wisconsin fields of experience, geophysical sciences, atmospheric sciences, meteorology, aerospace engineering sciences, atmospheric and oceanic sciences. Lots of stuff there, and then also just a number of honors and memberships of which I won't get into, and of course awards, because there's a lot of them, but I wanna mention just a couple. Uh, But just to highlight the National Science Foundation Presidential Young Investigator Award, and also an award from NASA. Judy, why don't you just backfill us here a little bit? Talk about some of the highlights of your career and some of the things that you'd like to mention that I've probably missed here because it's a long resume and it's quite qualified.
1: Well, I spent, you know, I got my PhD in 1982 and I spent um, most of my career in academia and I I moved around a a fair amount as, you know, opportunities arose. My latest academic appointment was um, at Georgia Tech, Georgia Institute of Technology, where I served as chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences for 13 years. I've been involved in the World Climate Research Program, the U.S. National Research Council. I've held appointments on committees and boards for NASA, the Department of Energy. NOAA, the National Science Foundation. So I've been fairly active in uh, the science policy interface, as well as my own personal research, which has ranged on a variety of topics in atmospheric and oceanic sciences, broadly related to climate variability and change. Um, More recently, say since about 2010, Um, I've been working on a range of topics that you might call more philosophy of science, largely related to uncertainty and epistemology of climate modeling. I've also, through work with my company, Climate Forecast Applications Network, we help companies and government agencies help understand and manage their weather and climate related risks. So I've taken a deep dive into uh, risk sciences and decision making under deep uncertainty. And you see all of that reflected in my latest book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. I've also authored several textbooks during my time thermodynamics of atmospheres and oceans, and kinetics, microphysics, thermodynamics of clouds. So I retired from my university position in 2017, and I went full time in the private sector since then.
0: I think there's a lot of stuff there and you can correct me if I'm wrong because you're older and much more experienced you have way more wisdom than I do but certainly these experience in this diversification of a career and of course taking opportunities like everybody should especially when you move around you take different opportunities in your field is that you also establish a very understood experienced mindset in terms of your experience throughout life and throughout your career and of course you form various uh, positions on things much more informed than you would have had you been in your teenage years or even in your 20s, and in some cases, maybe even 30s for some people, depending on how you're brought up and where you're brought up and all the other parameters surrounding that. But it's interesting in the sense that you know as we get older, we also become a little bit more set in our ways as well. And to have some of the experience that you have. And again, I'll just say for myself, I mean, I haven't been around as long as you have, and I certainly can say that I'm nowhere close to your level of expertise and experience being on basically a low-level dropout from a master's program down to a bachelor's of science and an associate's in business, political science, and history at Oregon State. Just hope that one day I can learn a portion of what maybe you've forgotten over your career. But one of the things I wanted to ask you here, just to tie this in, was throughout all of my life, I've consistently heard of things like global warming, greenhouse gases. Uh, If I remember, I think it was called CFCs, killing our atmosphere, ice caps melting away. Basically melt all that into the current term, I suppose, which is what people often refer to as climate change. A lot of people who say that word probably don't understand half of it, but that's the current term that's being used. And for me, I suspect that climate has evolved and changed going back thousands of years and beyond that. My question is to you is, as humans, maybe living 80 years, if we're lucky, and and gaining experience and hopefully wisdom and knowledge during that time, how do we as humans measure and even comprehend climate change if we only have the immediate past to draw upon?
1: Well, we do have a fairly good understanding of the climate broadly defined over the Earth's history going back, you know, millions to billions of years even. We have a general sense of of how it's varied and some reasons as to why it's varied in those ways. Recent climate change, say for the last 200 years, I mean, 200 years ago, we were in the midst of a big, you know, a little ice age, not a big, a little ice age. It was the coldest period of the last thousand years. There were three explosive volcanic eruptions in the early 1800s that. Cooled the climate considerably, so it was a fairly, you know, hostile time with famines and, you know, generally bad weather. So, so when people hold up the pre-industrial climate as some sort of a, you know, Goldilocks climate, well, that's rather a joke because it was in the middle of the little ice age. So, you know, we've been warming. Um, the modern warming started in about 1860, and Overall, so far, I would have to say that the warming has been beneficial and, you know, people have adapted to the slow creep of global warming. But there's always been environmental concerns back when I was younger. I mean, of course, global cooling was an issue. Acid rain was a big issue. Um, yeah, the CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons and the ozone hole and on and on go. you know, so there's always been... Concerns about how humans might be impacting their environment, but let's face it: there's now eight billion of us and counting. Of course, we're going to have an impact on the environment. You know, the challenge for us is to, you know, understand our impact and minimize it, you know, where we can, um, in a no-regret sense. We just have to get over the fact that humans impact the planet. So, so that's just you know some context for how I view all this. So, so the answer, you know, yes, we are warming, and yes, humans are contributing to it. But the weakest part of their argument is whether this warming is dangerous. And I would have to say that so far it hasn't been.
0: I appreciate you covering that off because there's a lot to talk about, and probably way more to talk about than we can cover in maybe an hour podcast or whatever this turns out to be. But Part of what you said there is the other piece of this, of course, that comes in is, is the discussion of CO2, what I'll just call the the war on CO2, because, of course, yes, we have impacts. Of course, uh, animals have impacts. Uh, natural disasters have impacts. Um, lots of things have impacts on this world in which we live. Obviously, we need to try to be as responsible as possible. I think everybody can agree on that. At the same time, we also have to live as normal human beings and hopefully have a traditional life that we would expect and also the pursuit of happiness and profit and and all the other things that go with that. Right, Judy? And the next part I was going to ask you about was I want to come back to atmosphere in a minute, but just your overall thoughts on CO2. Is it CO2, the increases in levels of CO2? And of course, my understanding is, again, I haven't spent near as much time as you have on it, but uh, CO2 levels historically today and maybe going forward. Maybe there's a trend that's being established here. But CO2 levels increasing, how risky is that? What's the impacts of CO2 levels increasing? But then at the same time, talk us about the downside. What happens if CO2 levels decrease too much? And obviously, we breathe it, we exhale it, uh, plants need it. What do you think about this war on CO2? And is it justified?
1: Well, By burning fossil fuels and our agricultural practices and our industrial practices, we are emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That's not disputed. Um, These gases do have infrared emission spectra, so they act in the direction of warming the planet. So these things aren't controversial, except how much warming from additional co2 is actually quite uncertain it's a factor of 3 uncertain t in the sensitivity of the climate to increasing co2 i mean and this is in the un climate assessment reports i mean this isn't too controversial that there's uncertainty into how much this increase of co2 is warming the planet, so we don't know. There's a complex global carbon cycle. Oceans release CO2 into the atmosphere, and they also serve as a carbon dioxide sink. Land processes, um, vegetation uses CO2 (laughs) to grow. Plants are fairly happy (laughs) with, with the rising CO2. And in fact, the planet is observed to be greening, Satellite observations over the past several decades have shown most of the world's regions greening, including having greater leaf area and being, frankly, more green as viewed from satellite. So it is what it is. You know, this thinking that pre-industrial temperatures were the Goldilocks zone and that Increasing CO2 is bad because it increases temperatures and various follow-on effects from increasing temperatures. Well, yeah, there's some impact, but we've adapted to the slow creep of warming over the 20th century, and we've done just fine. Population has increased substantially, and fewer people are living in poverty. Um, Life expectancy has increased. Fewer people, far fewer people lose their lives owing to weather disasters like hurricanes or whatever. So um, agricultural productivity has increased substantially with little increase in overall uh, land usage for agriculture. So we're actually doing pretty well right now. So these concerns are about what might happen in the future. And, you know, they've spun a narrative and they've presupposed that warming is dangerous, which I don't think it is. Um, And the slow creep of warming is something we can easily adapt to. I mean, the, the way that they've amped up the danger is to attribute every extreme weather event, hurricane, wildfire, flood, heat wave, cold outbreak, everything. They attribute everything to global warming. If the wine making is bad in a certain region will blame global warming you know every migration is blamed on global warming just everything is blamed on global warming when global warming essentially has nothing to do with it but it's used to amp up the alarm and it's become a convenient scapegoat you know when something bad happens like the, the collapse of the Libyan dam, that's the most recent, really bad catastrophe. Well, that dam was crumbling and falling apart for decades and they were well aware of it. And then they get some heavy rains and kaboom, you know, the thing, the dam breaks. So is that global warming or is that poor governance? Is it lack of investment in, um, in the infrastructure? Um, in Canada, the wildfires have just been insane this year. But part of the reason that they've gotten so bad, and yeah, and this was the case in Maui, we had really bad wildfires in Maui. And the issues is that more attention is being, you know, for the electric, a lot of this is caused by, at least especially in Maui, sparking from electric utility lines, you know, in high winds. The electric utilities in Maui are paying far more attention to installing new wind and solar power while neglecting cutting back the non-native vegetation, which which is very flammable. So it was just very, very easy for that fire to spread because of the non-native vegetation that hadn't been cut back from the region where the main power lines are. But no, let's blame it on CO2-driven warming. And that way we don't need to own up to our responsibilities and the mistakes that we've made. So you see this everywhere. It, it, global warming is just a cop-out for not taking care of our environment, not paying attention to our infrastructure, not having good warning practices, you know, not having good governance. It's just used as a, an excuse for everything that goes wrong. And it's a very convenient scapegoat. I want to
0: come back and, and maybe you can just as we talk here, maybe highlight some of the the folks that you refer to as they a little bit, uh, just in some of the the agendas that are out there. And also a little bit about the control narrative that also factors into this. And people, everybody individually should have the right to make their own decisions and do their own research, do the work, and don't rely upon some person that you don't even know to make your decisions for you. It also comes back to technical, technical careers, technical professionals in the world is very important to the way of life and also just advancement as a species. I think that's also an interesting piece of just lack of technical expertise in so many industries now. But let's leave all that for a moment. A number of things you said, the wealth generated by fossil fuels and the era of fossil fuel energy, which I do believe is being phased out. But while you might not use fossil fuels for energy in a 100 years or what have you, I don't know, Fossil fuels will be utilized in other things. Um, I can think of lots of products that we use daily that have fossil fuels as a component. And I'll be honest with you, you take that away. um, I'm not seeing how some of these components make it, but can we improve energy, which we'll come back to? Absolutely. Do we need fossil fuels for energy? Probably not. Why that hasn't transitioned faster, of course, is because of, well, follow the money. You mentioned also just that we're living longer. Coca-Cola sales. CO2, great sales coming reporting out of Coca-Cola. Great job, CO2, they're contributing. Beachfront real estate. Last I checked, there's not a bear market in beachfront real estate, Judy. It's actually quite robust. And even in light of Maui and what happened there and maybe some of the motivations behind that, in the history books, definitely, there's there's always the, uh, the arson that occurs uh, throughout human history, which is always interesting to research and look into as well. But besides that, to put power transmission underground, a really good example like this is, you know, island nations that constantly get whacked by hurricanes. Underground infrastructure for energy would be quite useful. Of course, it's more expensive. One of the things just on what you said there with the fires, that you're right. Just because of a bird nest in a tree near a transmission line, let's come back to the United States for a moment, the maintenance can be neglected because of a certain species, whether it's a, a worm or a bird or or what have you, or a certain time of the year in which there's migratory birds, they transit over transmission lines that uh, you can't maintain that line properly because of all the regulations from the agencies. And so you've had no maintenance, like you said. Just back to the comment you made there about just, you know, humans' impact on this earth. Of course, there's impacts. We do lots of activities on this earth. But do you think we're an invasive species? Or do you think it was by design that humans are supported on earth and maybe it was factored in?
1: I don't think either, you know, humans exist and, you know, we're we're the dominant species on the planet. So, you know, we're we're sort of in charge of various things and humans want to thrive and flourish. That's, you know, a natural thing to want. However, there's, you know, this big movement, you know, a degrowth movement, you know, anti- not just anti-fossil fuels, but anti-capitalist, anti-democracy, anti, anti, you know, everything. And the UN is very big on all this. You know, they like the idea of non-governmental control by a global body such as United Nations. So, you know, we put impediments in our way. You know, the the fact that the planet is currently supporting 8 billion people with a relatively small fraction of them in poverty is is really quite remarkable. You know, we owe that to technology and a large way to fossil fuels. You know, the challenge moving forward is, like you said, you know, we're almost certainly not going to be burning fossil fuels for electricity and transportation in 2100. But we will, of course, still be using them. So, you know, nuclear power is the obvious, you know, energy source, but there's this, you know, huge anti-nuclear lobby based on all sorts of political and irrational ideas. What really worries me in the near term is this big rush to implement wind and solar power, which is horrendous for the environment. It's not going to give us the energy reliability that we need. And it's turning out to be extremely expensive. A huge amount of transmission lines is, is required. And that's going to be extremely costly. So I just don't see any way that wind and solar is, you know, can be a dominant power source. The more we spin our wheels trying to do this, you know, we're we're destroying economies. I mean, look, look what's going on in Germany. <laughs> They've kneecapped their entire economy by thinking that they can go to completely wind and solar. Other countries are starting to realize how insane this is. But, you know, personally, I'm a fan of nuclear and the, the new geothermal technologies that are coming online. I think this is where the solution lies in terms of inexpensive electricity. And I think we need to have more local generation of electricity because the transmission lines are so vulnerable. And you can't, you can't bury the transmission lines everywhere. Like, for example, in Florida, the nature of the underlying ground is very porous limestone. It, it's just you know not right for burying transmission lines you know there's no way a lot around that one in some locations and i assume that's the case with some of these islands puerto rico whatever the underlying terroir if you will just isn't suitable for you know bearing the electric power line so so there's all sorts of complexities here and you know each location state country has to figure out what makes sense for them in order to deal with their local natural resources and their local economy and whatever and see what makes sense for them but putting these ridiculous targets and deadlines you know you urgently need to go to wind and solar that is just doing so much damage in so many ways you know to economy to human development to the environment you know it's just beyond crazy
0: yeah some very good points judy and certainly some engineering and electrical engineering and just engineering challenges with a lot of different things on some of these solutions and Very interesting, just some of the narratives on how, you know, people are pushing in certain directions, I suppose. Why don't we hold on energy for a moment and I'll come back to that, but I just wanted to go back to an area that you know really well. Give us a basic school education on atmosphere, the various types of atmospheres, uh, some of the gases within and you know how the sun impacts us how the oceans of course plat life you already covered some of that of course but just atmospheres in general and then just give us kind of an understanding of why the focus on just co2 and maybe that there's something else that we should focus on and give us a, a bit of an education because i think the audience could definitely use that and so could i
1: okay you know the over the several billion years <laughs> that the planet earth has been in existence Um, The climate has varied over, you know, a very, very wide range. For the last 10,000 years or so, since the end of the previous ice age, we've been in a fairly stable climate regime called the mid, you know, an interglacial, the mid-Holocene, and and fluctuations in the mid-Holocene have come from, you know, changes in the Earth's orbit, the ellipticity, the actual axial tilt, things like that. Um, the solar has gone through various cycles of internal activity in terms of how much energy it emits. We've had volcanic eruptions, which substantially influence our climate. But the, the thing that really Influences more on multi-decadal time scales, you know, the, the time scale of a human life. It's really the large-scale ocean circulation patterns and the oscillations, and, and these ocean circulation patterns, you know, the, the variation that you're most familiar with would be the El Nino and La Nina events. I mean, those are basically ocean circulation events, but they have, you know, there's variations on the decadal time scales, century time scales, and even millennial time scales. And these large-scale ocean circulation patterns influence the atmosphere, influences the clouds, which determine how much radiation from the sun actually is absorbed in the atmosphere and near the surface and, you know, a whole host of things. So there's all these processes going on. And on top of this, humans are to some extent changing the composition of the atmosphere. Yes, you hear about carbon dioxide, but there are some other trace gases that are relevant to methane, uh, nitrous oxide, ozone, for example. But humans also emit, you know, particulates, you know, like the air pollution. When you look outside and the sky is hazy, the air quality is bad or the smoke from a forest fire whatever. So humans, you know, burning fossil fuels emits small particles into the atmosphere, which which act to reflect the sun, have a cooling effect, and also influence the properties of the clouds, making them more or less reflective. So these are just some of the processes that are going on, and it's the integral, the accumulation of all these processes that you know, determine you know, what our climate looks like on time scale of a few years to a few decades. So that's sort of the factors that in play The issue with the UN climate assessments is that they focus on carbon dioxide and these trace gases. I mean, they downplay variations in the sun. They regard these ocean oscillations as noise. They relatively ignore volcanoes since, after all the last 150 years, there haven't been very many big volcanoes, so let's just ignore them for now. So they've just oversimplified the climate (laughs) you know, the so-called carbon dioxide control knob, where we can, you know, change the climate by dialing up the CO2 concentration or dialing it down, which is a complete joke, um, because we have a very complex nonlinear climate system. Sure, we do influence it, but there's no way we can control it. We need to abandon the idea that we can control the climate, you know, with CO2 emissions. Sure. We influence it, but even if we were to immediately shut off CO2 emissions, you know, the climate would still, (laughs) even after 50 years, the climate might still be warming. It takes a long time for the oceans and the carbon cycle and the ice sheets to come into some sort of an equilibrium, and you know, there's very long timescales involved here. You know, we've just oversimplified this whole issue of climate change by ignoring natural climate variability.
0: Interesting. I suppose, Judy, maybe I'm completely wrong with this, but if you've come from a part of the world that's been able to live in abundance for the last generation or two or what have you you tend to get lazy and you want to simplify things when things are very complex. And I think that's in terms of just people wanting to oversimplify things. Let's not focus on the details, which of course that's not good. But basically just that abundance has resulted in people wanting to try these things, wanting to try new systems of government, which we already know how that works because human beings are human beings, right? Whether you're a government official or you're a person in the private sector, it doesn't matter. You're still a human being. You still do the same activities. You're no different. Just because you drive an electric car doesn't mean you're any better than someone who drives a a gasoline internal combustion engine. Let's go take a look at where you plug in at night, see where that energy goes to. Is it a coal plant in Colorado? What is it? So, You know, people want to generally avoid the technical hard work and just kind of make generalizations. And I guess that leads me to just another question. You're a person that's a technical person. There's a lot of details in the work that you do. You're credentialed, you're qualified, you've had firsthand experience to back up what determinations you've made throughout your career about these issues that we've uh, discussed in part today so far. What do you think the motive is behind the scenes based on what you've seen? And You know how do we mitigate that is this a money grab is it a control
1: grab what do you think all of the above i mean the the political roots of all this go back to the 1980s uh the u.n environmental program you know it's an anti-capitalist anti-fossil fuel organization you know it has all the world radicals in the u.n environmental program and they were looking for a cause that would you know promote their desire for globalization. They hated fossil fuels. When the climate issue became, you know, came along, they said, okay, this is our ticket. And by 1992, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change had a treaty that 196 countries signed, including the US, to eliminate fossil fuel emissions to prevent dangerous anthropogenic climate change. This is in 1992, before we had any evidence, you know, that there was any kind of unusual warming. So, the, the, you know, the policy cart has been way out in front of the scientific course from the very beginning on this. So it's politics, you know, and then people figured out how to make money off of it. You got a lot of, you know, young activists who were interested in this problem. They went and got their PhD. They now dominate the universities. So you've got this whole, you know, idea. There was a recent survey of university faculty members working broadly in the climate area, and 70% of them were in favor of degrowth. Not just green growth, but actual degrowth. They want fewer people. They want no fossil fuels. You know, they want people to go back and live in huts. I don't know. But but that's the mindset, you know, that is dominating this. It's a political mindset. It You know, over the decades, it's become entrenched politically in the UN. It's become entrenched politically in the universities and <laughs> the information, the main information that we have. And, of course, the media amplifies it even more into an alarm. You know, there's all sorts of, you know, social factors that are in play that are reinforcing this whole thing. But, you know, and how are people supposed to sort this out? Even scientists who would have the same, essentially the same credentials that I do, can put, you know, 50 of us in a room and we're going to disagree. And and that's because this is a, a deeply highly complex uncertain problem and there's a lot that we don't know. So if you can't get you know scientists say with my credentials in a room to agree, you know then then how is the the general public supposed to sort this out? But but the root of the problem so you just say well it's okay we don't need to have agreement. I mean disagreement is what drives scientific progress forward. What what's driving the need for consensus and agreement is the desire to control. I mean, not just to control the social, economics, politics of the whole thing, but also to control the climate. And this is a completely <laughs> naive and stupid idea that politicians have been stuck on you know, since about 1990. And <laughs> you know, they're just thinking they can control the climate. You know, Well, get over it, you can't. So, I mean, that's what's in play. And it's very complex. And you can find people who will disagree with me and you'll find people who agree with me. But as an example, how hard it is for the average person to like figure this out. When the COVID pandemic struck, I was just fascinated apart from, you know, concerns about my personal health and the health of my family and employees. You know, I was just fascinated by this and I, I really spent a lot of time, you know, looking into it, um, reading all the primary literature, trying to separate the signal from the noise and on and on. It was exceedingly difficult to do. I mean, the World Health Organization, the U.S. CDC were just making stupid proclamations and then you get the politicians involved and it was you know i see you know, i I thought about by analogy how hopeless it was for people to try to sort out the whole climate thing i mean given all the noise based on my ethics sort or of the my personal experience in terms of trying to sort out all the covid information and misinformation and whatever um so it's it's very hard so what we need to do and this is a the central theme of my book you know is We have to don't pretend that you're going to understand everything and, you know, abandon the notion that you can control these complex, global, wicked problems and do your best to understand them and figure out how to manage the risks. People are able to come to agreement on solutions a lot easier than they are to come to agreement on the causes, like people will disagree about carbon dioxide and climate and all that stuff until they're blue in the face, but everybody can agree that we need more R&D on energy technologies and we need to reduce our vulnerability to extreme weather events. Everybody can agree on that. And if you abandon, you know, if you abandon control, the idea that you can control all this, you abandon all those crazy targets and timelines. You know, sure, we should try to lower our impact on the environment as much as reasonably practical, but we just have to accept that we are going to have a footprint on this planet and we just need to figure out how to adapt.
0: Very good points. Lots of stuff to unpack It's just a a very interesting conundrum we found ourselves in. And also, Judy, that you mentioned that who are certain countries or certain unelected organizations to levy and mandate a developing country don't have an air conditioning in their home or you cannot have the access to maybe the, the wealth creation that my country has had or what have you. And I think... That's going to be a very, very difficult object and hurdle to overcome if you're going to start to tell other countries and people you've never even personally met what you will do. I don't see how that works out so
1: well. Well, that's the most immoral aspect of this whole thing. I've been a strong advocate for electrifying Africa, and I work with developing countries in uh, South Asia and also Africa. My company does. Uh, the, The issue is. All of the money that used to go into development, you know, like from the World Bank, the UN, all, all these aid organizations that used to go into development, um, reducing poverty and trying to provide them with energy. Now all of that has been redirected into so-called mitigation, <laughs> you know, wind and solar. And these countries have to sign agreements not to develop fossil fuel resources, and, in order to get loans, and on and on it goes. And in Africa, you know, they have a lot of fossil fuel resources, a lot of coal, a lot of natural gas, a lot of oil, and they don't have the money or the infrastructure for the most part to actually use it to, you know, power their country. So they end up, you know, selling off all their fossil fuel resources to Europe and Asia to support their, you know, high emission, high energy lifestyle. And, you know, this is all completely immoral. We call it a green colonialism. Mm. I can't remember some of the other names, but they're very apt. And, and it's the most unethical and immoral thing that I can think of is trying to hold back these populations in Africa and other developing countries. I mean, all for hypothetical harms that probably won't really be noticeable until the 22nd century, you know, if at all. So yeah, it, it, it just doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, stay in your lane and stay out of other people's business. That's, I think, the basics of this. And unfortunately, those things are being eroded and they're being eroded on multiple fronts, whether it's economic leverage, whether it's social leverage, what have you. My choice to put beans and rice on the table is my choice. And irrespective of what the impacts are, I need that fuel to live and provide for my family. It really is uh, hypocritical. It's just an absolute shame to see some of these things happen. And some of the policymakers that, again, unelected some of these organizations, I mean, you brought up the UN first here, and I guess we'll pick on them just a little bit. The mandate has changed a lot since World War II. I can't remember the last time, Judy, that I've heard of a government organization, an agency, or an unelected organization that's backed by government ever be dissolved. I've never seen any lawmakers who are their purpose is to wake up every day and make laws and regulations and administrative rules and code of rules and everything else that you have. I don't see any rollbacks. All I see is continued squeeze. And obviously when your whole job is to make rules and you do it at the municipal level, you do it at the county level, you do it at the state level, you do it at the federal level, you do it at the to be global control level. It's pretty clear that this, this all can't end well. Finance is economics, social, of these angles happening right now and you're in the midst of it too of course in in the states Uh, this is a place that's festering with a lot of this right now you brought this uh, the COVID piece up government giving medical advice what about my doctor government giving financial and scientific advice what about my financial advisor and my personal scientist? what about me just going and doing my own work why can't i go and do my own work without being pushed in a certain direction And I guess with that, I'll just say recently I'm completely surprised by this and appalled that one of our recent episodes of our podcast, uh, happy to say, humbly, a very small, mining and energy focused podcast that almost nobody listens to, gets flagged with a UN notice. To me, it's a big red flag to have something so small and so almost meaningless in terms of coverage and impact. You know, you mentioned social media influencers. It's a huge red flag to me. I've never seen this before. I think it's uh, absolutely nuts. And so with any comments you have, but then ask you this question, talk about the funding for science and is it mostly biased?
1: Okay, well, the the funding for climate science or, or any science, you know, is tied to political priorities. There's very little funding, you know, for truly basic research. Um, specifically with regards to, say, climate science. I mean, this is what I would call use-inspired research and policy-relevant research. The government's agencies in the U.S. and, and Europe, those are the ones I'm most familiar with, and I assume it's the same in Australia, but I don't know what goes on in China or anything like that. But they're looking to support the national political agenda, which is tied to the U.N., framework convention on climate change and to support the UN climate assessment reports, you know, which are tied to looking for dangerous human caused climate change. So the announcements for opportunities that go out, you know, relate in some way to or implicitly assume dangerous anthropogenic climate change. So, you know, if, if you want research funding in the climate area, I mean, you would be um, wanting to cue to the party line, so to speak. So, I mean, there's just anything that would be looking to rethink, you know, how we view the whole climate system would be regarded as non-responsive to most announcements of opportunity for funding. So there's just, you know, no government funding for what I would say a broader perspectives on all these things. And so there's a lot of foundation support. I mean, Bill Gates is funding a ton of stuff, you know, the Gates Foundation and other organizations fund a lot of research and a lot of applied research. But the big money, you know, is all going in, how shall I say, the supporting the alarming narrative. And any time a petroleum company or an oil company, you know, and we're talking billions of dollars from, you know, Tom Steyer and um Bill Gates and, you know, all these people are talking billions. And anytime an oil company or petroleum company spends 100K supporting somebody, then they're up in arms and the person who received that money is in the pay of big oil and they're regarded as disgraced, you know, and on and on it goes. So it's just, you know, so, so the people who are, you know, doing a lot of the meaningful research are people who are retired, people from other fields who are independently wealthy, who become interested in the topic, and people in the private sector. I mean, these are the people who are providing different perspectives. You don't get any of it from the government labs or the government-funded university researchers. So it's a, and, and so, you know, I get criticized for having some oil companies as clients of my company, my weather and climate services company, you know, but like, and it's so ridiculous, like, all of a sudden, I've been bribed by oil companies. Well, if I cared about money, I would have kept my big salary at Georgia Tech, you know, in the private sector, I'm making a lot less money than I did it in the university. So it's just a whole senseless situation. And there's not, you know, there's plenty of Alternative perspectives out there, but you know they're they're generally ignored um, by the media. they don't get government funding, they don't get invited to participate in the u n assessment reports, and on and on it goes. So what we have is policy driven science.
0: <laughs> that's not science. no, no, I'm terrible about this. the structure is degraded and eroded, and you could also make an argument now, even in the medical field that that also is happening, and it's because of special interests and these desires for control. That lunacy, I don't know how else to put it. A lot of the stuff there that you mentioned is just very difficult to chew through and to be able to sort out. But I think a basic work and review of this would definitely lead to a lot of questions, and people have to ask questions. That's what has to happen, and that's where education comes in and life experience You and I both went to university. Obviously you have way more credentials than I do, but one thing at university I certainly learned is everybody has opinions, including the professors and the instructors. And and then there's also fact. Do what you want. Certainly I learned some good discipline in college. I didn't learn everything. Of course, I was a young person that uh, enjoyed friends and the parties in college town. How effective and how good can you be at that age, I guess is maybe the question resulting from that. Paid a lot of money for that. (laughs) But like you said before, different opinions you know you put 10 accountants lawyers doctors nutritionists scientists and investment advisors in the same room and you'll get seven to nine different opinions within each area of expertise i think that that's constructive in the sense that people have to debate present evidence debate again come up with theories disprove and approve some of those theories and and actually come to it. I mean, I don't know, is the earth round or square? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe people are gonna try to talk about that, but just because someone else tells you that the, the sky is red and it's not blue, do some work. You mentioned earlier about the people suggesting that maybe we should go back to live in huts or caves or what have you, which maybe for some it would be useful. The same people who talk about promote this seem to be very well off they have nice cars they use smartphones they use all the products that they basically are telling us not to use because of the carbon input or the impact on fossil fuels or what have you most of our plastics and a lot of other things come from fossil fuels and mining is obviously a a huge beneficiary of all this uh, because all the materials we need comes from the ground and even things like fertilizer which goes on our plants well that's mined too and so maybe Smith Weekly Research should retain you and get your expertise on science. What's wrong with that? I mean, people have psychiatrists. Why can't we have scientists in the room?
1: I, I mean, the whole issue is, <laughs> yeah, well, sci- yeah, which scientists? <laughs> do you want one of the activist scientists or do you want a scientist who really has a, some context in terms of the philosophy of science? So there's a huge spectrum. So saying so that scientists, you know, are some sort of you know, gods that we need to listen to scientists, where there's a heck of a lot of activist scientists out there that you don't want to listen to. So I don't think that's any panacea. I think we just need to abandon this idea that we can control all these complex things, move towards a, a risk management approach. You know, people are stupid, believing really stupid things. I mean, that that's a sign of, you know, a lack of education. And, you know, that's always a challenge. but even for you know people who do go to university um there's not a sufficient emphasis on actual critical thinking you know they they just learn a bunch of facts and they you know they get they pass tests and they get grades and they you know forget most of what they learn they have a credential and get a job and you know all of it gets lost but um but how to think <laughs> critical thinking you know being wide read and being exposed to diverse perspectives including political perspectives i mean that's what we should be exposing young adults to in the universities and that's not what our universities look like these days
0: true and i think for me you know again i'm not as old as you are but in my experience i've learned that uh, listening to older people that have been there and done that is some of the most useful wisdom transfer that i've encountered even when I went to university, Judy, you already had that transition of basically a standardized format that's desensitized. And essentially now you have a system that is basically creates a desensitized view of the human being in terms of almost commercial cattle farm, if you will. Everybody on this earth is human being, but some people think that somehow they're above that and they can levy without regard on millions of people and that people should be able to make their
1: own decisions and do their own work you know with age hopefully you know comes a certain amount of wisdom but what i have found is you know the the people you know once you leave the university environment and having to uh play that game you know you're, you're able to be more objective but if your job depends on you know you're saying and you have a mortgage to pay and kids to put through college and whatever you know you're not gonna rock the boat or jeopardize your job so um yes You know, so so being old enough to be financially independent in some way also helps in addition to just like accumulated experiences and wisdom.
0: Very much. And I guess with that, just we'll stay on that. Just overall wisdom transfer, Judy, of course, you have to look at restructuring some of these systems that are in place, talking about uh, the overall wisdom transfer on technical skills, because I think you and I can both agree without engineers, without sanitation clean water which requires chemistry and a bunch of other things if you have a shortage of technical jobs electrical engineering infrastructure technology all these things that are technical focused and oriented which a lot of people will tend to shy away from that and if you can get a job as a social media influencer and get paid by clicks that's more convenient potentially than actually having to learn a technical skill that actually has impact on backbone of infrastructure in society but to me, things get pretty rough if you don't have clean water, you don't have your garbage picked up, you don't have all those processing, sanitation, energy that's stable, the internet that's stable, all of that background, technical skill work. I think that there's a shortage of that happening in many industries, if not completely. What are your
1: thoughts on that? When we had the COVID lockdown, certain people were classified as critical workers. Okay, these were people. You know, we just you know kept the the shelves on the grocery store full, and you know, gasoline at the stations, and you know, basic things, you know, and repair people and and hospital workers, you know, and these these are really the critical workers that you know help our help our society you know function, um, and they get paid nothing. For the most part, these are the workers that get paid nothing as opposed to, you know, university professors with their 250K salaries or whatever university salaries are these days. I mean, it, it just sort of made me think about, you know, who's really critical here? Um, And it certainly isn't the egghead activist professors. It, it's really people who help, you know, function in our day-to-day life. And then of course the entrepreneurs who, you know bring new ideas to market and actually have them help improve things so so our ideas and who gets rewarded financially is is somewhat backwards in many ways and you know and, and life is too easy <laughs> this is you know for for many people in the us and and i see a lot of second generation americans you know the parents emigrated and then the children sort of grew up and, and these are the kids who are just really working so hard and doing so well and being so ambitious as opposed to you know kids growing up in wealthy families and you know they're aspire to a Kardashian kind of lifestyle so you know there, there's some sort of screwed up values <laughs> You know, in in, a, in really prosperous countries, you know, when you're so far away from having to worry about basic needs that we see these kids, you know, the extinction rebellion, oh, our world is going to end and all this kind of stuff. And they don't realize that they live in the best time ever to be a human on this planet. And so we just have this really warped perspective in affluent countries in many ways that, you know, is at the right. root of with some of this insanity, I think.
0: Unfortunately, I think that history's pretty clear on what the results are. And you don't have to you know, think that this time it's different because most likely history suggests that it's not different. It doesn't require a, a history major to sort that out. It's fairly cut and dried, that there's a life cycle to societies and governments, and economies and, and countries, nations. Unfortunately, deterioration is not the funnest time to be around irrespective of what you do, Judy, whether you're trying to control weather or bioengineer your food to control all these things, the fact of the matter is is it cannot be controlled and that uh, the end result is pretty much a a certain outcome. And then, of course, from there, people seem to clean up their act. And those hard times, I think, Judy, tend to correct, self-correct, and here you go again. And people want to try to make it better. And maybe I'm not correct in that thinking, but that's generally the alignment if you do a little bit of work on the history side of things. Um, why don't we move into just energy in general here and just talk a little bit about that. And I appreciate the time and because I know you have better things to do than talk to me all day. But I think an area that really the wheels are starting to come off is this promote of wind and solar. Because to me, both of these forms of energy, Judy, and i interesting itching to hear your opinion here, but this form of energy production has a giant footprint in terms of land usage. And destruction of that land um, through the leaching of materials into the soils, but also heavy use of materials, of course, uh, the mining sector will flourish, irrespective of what energy we use. But also frequent maintenance need and component replacement periods are quite short compared to alternative forms. And then also just significant issues on life cycle and recycling supply chain problems, which we haven't even solved a uh, huge waste impact, in my opinion. And also battery panel blade parts waste as well as part of this. And then, of course, all of this impacts wildlife and the environment in ways that we really haven't quantified yet. It's pretty ugly. And I guess I would just borrow a term from a colleague that we both know, Ian Plymer. And it's not renewable, it's ruinable. And that wind and solar struggle to work just on wind alone and solar alone, Judy, because they really only function with subsidies. Some of these projects might be economically viable, but generally it's pretty upside down. It's certainly a step backwards, in my opinion, after spending. Since 2016, we've been in the investment side of the energy sector, looking at energy investments, and predominantly we had settled with a big focus on sources of energy inclusive of commercial nuclear power and fission, is the best thing that we have going for us. There's a large fleet of commercial reactors around the world, and that fleet is growing, uh, although be it small percentage growth, it is growing. And we are actually having a reversal of policies now that we're starting to see. And so for us, we had always looked at these forms of energy and we've just determined that high quality, high density energy that comes in a fairly small footprint gets you back to commercial reactors you know, with that, we've had to take a hard look at why wind and solar is out here. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that just after my long-windedness. But what do you think of wind and solar? And what do you think is a reasonable general solution for energy?
1: Well, I think offshore wind is an unmitigated disaster. The costs are huge. Uh, The replacement cycle is very short. The ecological damage is tremendous. So uh, I think People are starting to come to realize this, that offshore wind is just not going to work. I think onshore wind, you know, in some locations, they are currently helping. You know, know, when you have penetration of maybe 20, 25 percent of wind power, it, it makes your grid a lot more difficult to operate, but it's not doing a whole lot of harm. Um, The ideas of trying to bring wind to a much higher percentage, then you run into a great deal of trouble and wind becomes very expensive in terms of all you need. Asynchronous condensers and on and on it goes and it's intermittent and everybody knows that the utility scale batteries aren't going to work. So we need to just get over the idea that wind is a good solution. It may have some niche applications, but it's not a good solution. I think there's more upside for solar in terms of technological advances, you know, that continue in photovoltaics. I think there is a, a role for rooftop solar. I mean, it puts the energy where you need it. I mean, in in, in your structure, um, and it doesn't, you know, have a a land footprint beyond the structure. I think wind farms are a bad idea. So I think there's you know, a role for rooftop solar. People like the idea of autonomy, You know, having their power generated local and not subject to random crazy whatever might happen. I mean, I have rooftop solar at my house for energy security reasons. Um, I have it with two Tesla power walls. So if the electric grid goes out, I mean, I have electricity. Um, so people like that for personal energy security i mean the alternative is a propane tank but you know that that is a solution for now it may not be real viable long term so no i'm not a fan of of wind and solar as some sort of major <laughs> solution i mean the, the, yeah. the transmission grid required is insane and um and, and it's going to be extremely expensive you know it People say, oh, it's free, wind and the sun is free. Well, it really is not, it's extremely expensive, much more expensive than your coal and gas generated electricity. I agree that I like the generation for nuclear power plants. There's, you know, really exciting advances. You know, the modular reactives and thorium and salt cooling and air cooling and on and on it goes and able to recycle your fuel. And there's just so many advances that are being made, you know. So when I look ahead to 2100, I mean, we'll be mostly nuclear. Um, It's hard to imagine that we won't be. Um, I like geothermal, uh, some of the new geothermal technologies. I think this is a good solution in some regions, including the American West. So I think we'll see more of geothermal but you know the, the the point is is we have to drop these deadlines we have to explore these technologies develop the learning curve and you know assess the full life cycle costs of all these things and assess their impact on overall energy cost and reliability and security and you know we need to assess all these things and we have to you know just let the the learning curve play out i mean It makes total sense to reimagine a 21st century electricity infrastructure, you know, to move away from gas and coal. But, you know, going going back to uh, wind and solar is certainly not the way to go. So, I mean, we just have to allow it to play out, but the most important thing is just to drop these crazy targets and deadlines, which is pushing us in the direction of wind and solar
0: really good sensible points there are certainly applications for wind and solar and maybe i came across a little bit too harsh but certainly there are special niche applications for both on a widespread commercial basis i don't think they're sensible compared to high density high quality energy that you can get out of a commercial reactor of course i mean when you could take a can of coke and power your life with a can of coke of enriched uranium you cannot look past that and if you can get to the point where you can prove commercial and economic viability of fusion power, that is amazing, that's the holy grail in my opinion. If we're gonna look at other planets, Judy, of course, you know, wind and solar panels aren't gonna get our spaceships to those planets, we have to look at fusion, we have to look at propulsion that's sensible. Absolutely agreed with that, and you know, it's interesting, some parts of the world hydro flourishes, other parts of the world aren't amenable to hydro, and then some parts of the world, Judy, as you know, hydro is being pulled out, and hydro certainly is very proven form. You know, you look at the footprints of these various pieces, there's uh, lots of questions on wind and solar with, with respect to total footprint and total impact. Some of the other long-term forms, we've obviously been able to measure pretty well some of those impacts, and then the life of some of these things. So, you know, when you look at a commercial reactor today, depending on what country, whether it's Japan or Russia or, or China, depending on where these are being built, India, you know, most of these reactors now are being looked at for 60 year initial license, 40 year initial license. There's been talk of 100 year licenses. That is impressive. So good discussion there and certainly uh, do what's sensible. And of course, you know enough about radiation and some of the, the waste and the various impacts that people have utilized and weaponized in terms of when you go back to nuclear being something that has been spun around fear for many, many decades, and of course, coming out of the oil lobby, of course, back in the day, and some of the accidents that had occurred. You know, When you look at that and you look at the actual measurable impact, um, it's not what was overblown and was not certainly something that was promoted by Hollywood or what have you. The narrative has evolved, I suppose, over the last uh, many decades. We have a reactor history that is very, very amenable to expansion. When you look at it on a per terawatt hour basis of generation, Uh, you have a huge safety record that's very impressive compared to all other forms. And I think we're still trying to quantify the impacts of fossil fuels on general pollution and how that's impacted cities. But I like how you think it should be in terms of how we should probably look at energy going forward. And uh, there are some very good viable solutions and the technology is improving substantially. So just a couple other things here. Carbon credits and carbon taxes. What are your thoughts on this? This has obviously been something that's been going on for decades. Talk about that and then also I'm sure you've heard of the term ESG, environmental social governance. What are your thoughts on those two trendy items?
1: Okay, carbon credits and ESG are pointless exercises. They're not gonna accomplish anything Um, and probably end up doing more harm than good. So I have no time for carbon credits or ESG with regards to carbon taxes. This is a credible mechanism. We tax far stupider things than carbon, (laughs) you know? So, um, you know, should we really be taxing our income rather than consumption? So, you know, at a high level, a carbon tax makes sense in context of our taxes that are already too high, nobody wants another tax. So, in principle, I think a carbon tax makes sense, but in practice, it's not very popular because of all the other taxes that are out there. So, you know, th- th- there's no substitute for innovation, for research and development into new energy technologies, better agricultural practices, new methods for making cement and steel, and all the other things that. Artificial intelligence and so forth. I mean, there's no, we we can't sort of just reshuffle the deck um, with taxes and credits and whatever. We just need to enlarge the size of the tech, you know, the deck through our innovation. I mean, that's the way forward. Well said on that.
0: And I think we'll leave it there. There's probably a few other things that we can talk about here, but I think just overall here, uh, why don't we just discuss briefly the work you're presently doing? how folks can learn more about what you're doing and then also where they can get your book as well as any other final comments you'd like to leave our audience with on how to think about climate and how they should maybe go and do some of their own research, for example, where they might start.
1: Well, a good starting point is my book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, and you can buy it at amazon.com. Barnes & Noble and a lot of online sellers. It shouldn't be hard to find. It's currently in hardcover paperback and Kindle. An audio version is in the works. I also have a blog called Climate Etc. The address is judithcurry.com. Um, We discuss a lot of interesting topics, ranging from climate science to energy systems to policy and politics. I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at CurryJA. My company is Climate Forecast Applications Network. The website is cfanclimate.net. And my company is about helping businesses and Government agencies manage their weather and climate-related risks through probabilistic forecasts and risk management approaches. Some people
0: do listen in that have, you know, businesses. Uh, we have some mining companies that listen into our podcast, et cetera. You know, just one more plug for your business and your consulting business. How can you help some of these companies?
1: I do have clients in the petroleum sector and mineral mining. Part of what I do for them relates to predicting extreme weather events. Flooding seems to be a big issue for mining and having, you know, short-term forecasts of flood potential or even seasonal forecasts or even like five-year to 10-year outlooks as to whether this mine is going to have too much water in the vicinity, not enough water to support mining operations. I mean, that's one example. So. Perfect. You know, helping people with, you know, any weather or climate related risks to their mining operations.
0: That is absolutely perfect because that fits in really well with what we're talking about and a lot of people we talk to. So that's great. I think that gives people a flavor for some of the services you can offer. And then also some of the other areas in which you're offering consulting aside from your book. Uh, Judy, look, really appreciate the time. This has been a great conversation. I hope you'll come back Thank you again for taking the time for talking to our audience.
1: Okay, thank you. Enjoyed it.